The following presentation was recorded at Faith Builders. More information on Faith Builders events at fbep.org. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. I guess I'm addressing mainly teachers and potential teachers. Is that, is that correct? So it's kind of a new experience for me to uh, be focusing primarily um, on teachers and their needs. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to just simply make a few comments, and that is that uh, my daughter was here for, I don't know, was it a year? I think about a year. And I want to thank the school for, uh, for helping my daughter because she really enjoyed her year here and she worked through a few struggles that she was facing and, and I felt like she really began to blossom while she was here. And I want to thank all of those of you who had a part in uh, changing her life and helping her. She really enjoyed the work in the, uh, what do you call the ultra care program? Personal care program, okay. She enjoyed working with the old people. And she, today, she is employed at Hillcrest, Arkansas, at the nursing home there. But at, today, she's in Switzerland on a trip for two weeks. And she's really enjoying herself. I called her last night in Germany and had a good talk with her. She turned 22 yesterday. But she's having a great time in Switzerland uh, just looking at some of the Anabaptist history, touring the country, and... Uh, sightseeing and going through castles and just enjoying having a good time. Well, this morning I'd like to focus on a few things and I'm not sure if you are aware of, uh, of where I've been the last seven years, but uh, I have felt years ago God calling me into faith missions, uh, to live by faith, and do mission work, especially among the unchurched, the unlovely, the looked down upon, the cast outs. And I really find fulfillment in working with the people who have been overlooked and uh, sneered at, perhaps, and made fun of, and uh, people who just simply seem of no value in society. I know that for a time I was uh, serving at our Canton Mission in Canton, Ohio. I was ordained back in 1976. And uh, my first few years I was working with a number of families that were shut-ins who weren't Christian. Uh, some were, some weren't, but uh, who couldn't get out of the house. And people, uh, it seemed like they were people that were kind of bypassed by society. And uh, we enjoyed going there, having cottage meetings for them and uh, bringing God's love to them. We had them come to our place once a year. We had this big chicken barbecue that we would send vans out to bring these people in who were on in wheelchairs, uh, old people, shut-ins, uh, people that didn't have church to go to, uh, didn't have family to take care of them, uh, people that just simply were friendless. And uh, we got great delight and reward by just simply having them come to our place and give them a good day, uh, singing, uh, prayer, and uh, having chicken barbecue and playing some games and fellowshipping. I'll never forget the one time this one lady on a wheelchair, she could hardly speak English, and if you wouldn't have known her, you would have thought she may have been mentally 
lacking, but she was not. She was very alert mentally, but she spoke in a broken manner, and you had to really listen carefully to, to hear what she was saying. But the one day she was there, after a day of fellowship and um, being together, she she told me in tears, she said, you know, she said, I really enjoyed today. And she said that this is my first time in my life that I ever had chicken barbecue. An older lady, living in the city all her life, and she was from Italy years ago. And that meant a lot to me. I just felt like, you know, that's what Christ would do. He would go out there and he would call in those who are lame and blind and he would minister to their needs. And I feel like many times we had the mentality that, well, now it's your turn to invite me over. I invite you today, next Sunday, it's you to invite me over. The idea of exchanging services, we're here to, you know, we're here to uh, uh, be ministered unto. But God has called us to minister. That's why we're here. And I felt years ago the call to minister, especially in faith missions. And as these families I was working with gradually passed away one by one, I held probably more uh, non-Christian funerals than I did Christian funerals. And as they passed away one by one, it seemed like my ministry was kind of fading away. But I knew that God was preparing me for something different. And as each one began to pass away and die off, one lady left yet who was in a wheelchair, and I still worked with her. But in the meantime, I was asked to go to Canada, to NYP, for a couple years to help Krasnup in his ministry among the Indian people. And I felt like this was what God's call was for us. So we went, church released us, we were there then five years instead of two years. And uh, my time there was tremendously faith-building and also exposing myself to the needs of the world, uh, the needs of the Indian people and uh, some of the things they're struggling with, uh, suicide, uh, alcohol, drug abuse, sexual abuse, uh, marital problems, uh, tremendous needs among the Native people. Uh, when I was there, the Lord took me through a few experiences that uh, were training, uh, like a training school for me. There's nothing like being involved person to person with people and their needs. That's the best school you can go to, by the way. You can go to these kind of sessions and be encouraged and find some tools to help you, but uh, you can learn faster and learn quicker and it makes a more, it must make a greater impact when you learn on the field while you are in battle. Uh, the Lord has really taken us through a lot of experiences that I just want to praise Him for and thank Him for. Today, I would like to say that none of us today are what we are because of what we have done. We are today what we are because of what God has done through people to meet our needs. And, uh, I want to thank the Lord for that, and I want to give God the credit for anything that I have learned. I have much more to learn yet. But while I was there for five years, I, I learned a lot of things in administration, in ministering, in counseling, types of counseling, methods of counseling, uh, exposed to various needs in that manner. Then, being there for five years, I felt like my time there was coming to an end. My 
ministry was completed and God was calling me on. And so I told the mission that I feel like God is calling me to leave and I want to leave uh, in a certain amount of time. Word got out that I was leaving and then the uh, board at the Bolligo Boys Camp in Pennsylvania uh, heard about it and they gave me a call and said they would like to have me come and begin their boys camp. That was back in 1994. And so we prayed about it and uh, asked the church again if they would release us, and they, and they did. So we felt called to go to the boys' camp. We were there t- two years. And uh, there we went through tremendous, tremendous struggles. Uh, also went through tremendous joys. Uh, we had heights of of joy that just came and then we had uh, valleys of despair that came because they say that when you start a camp uh, there's nothing more difficult than to start a new boys camp boys that are emotionally disturbed the boys that are on the way for to suicide on the way to being delinquent and uh, when you have these boys coming to camp, uh, you have a whole new thing to focus on. Uh, the camp that we started is a wilderness camp, and uh, the camp is actually effective only as we have people who love young people, and only as we have as we have a core group of boys that have worked through their emotional problems. And then they can assist the chiefs or the counselors to help new boys that come. But when you start a camp, you have all new people, all new staff. You have all new boys. You have no core group, no one that has already learned how to make proper decisions and use common sense. And then you have a whole new state to work with, state people who, who rely totally upon degrees, uh, as a manifestation of your ability to work with uh, dysfunctional children. And so the state, of course, we're new there, and they want to know my degrees and my experience and why I'm there, and then they want to know what degrees the counselors are going to have and uh, their experience and, and my past. And so we had to take a FBI check and have to check into my records to see if I'm... Uh, the right kind of person to be there. And of course, I told them I have no degrees. Uh, I have not had any kind of degree given to my name through schooling. But I said, I have five years experience working in Canada, working among the youth there and among even parents who have problems. And after they heard that, they said, okay, well, we'll we'll accept that. You know, we'll we'll take that as, as perhaps you might be qualified to take that position as director of the camp. Well, anyway, uh, it's amazing how people today uh, dwell upon uh, a degree or a training as being qualified uh, to handle a situation. And I think that we need training. That's why we have faith builders, to have the right kind of training. But the secular training is, is, is so much intellect and so much uh, ego building, uh, so much man's methods, that I just have a problem with some 
some of their approaches. In fact, I discourage people from going to schooling unless they have a definite call and purpose to go to a secular college because of the dangers involved. In fact, even in our own local Christian school, I felt like you know there were needs there. Uh, character building was not really a focus as how it should be. And I felt like we were getting carried away with focusing on an intellect. And 13 years ago, I felt God calling us to homeschool. We've homeschooled 13 years now. And we still have two boys left at school. And it's been a growing experience for our family to homeschool. But I still feel like God has called us into homeschooling and God has prepared us uh, for the mission work because of homeschooling. And uh, I learned a lot because of homeschooling as a father. Uh, in fact, I took the homeschooling approach a lot because I felt I needed to be trained and taught. And our focus in our homeschooling was on godly wisdom and godly character, two areas of need that I felt like our schools are neglecting and overlooking. Even among Christian schools, sad to say, sometimes we focus on intellect and uh, we grade according to intellect and we forget about character development and how God looks at our hearts and our and our abilities and how he has made us how to function and so forth. Anyway, this morning I have, I'm not going to be telling you that I have reached to any kind of uh, uh, perfection or I'm not also qualified to even speak on the subject of loving the unloved child. However, I have gone through a few experiences that, uh, that have helped me to work through my own response to those who are unlovely. And the things that I want to dwell upon this morning, you can apply not just to the unlovely child, but to also to all those who are unlovely. Adults, uh, people you interact with daily. How do you respond to unlovely people? To get through very carefully, because I'll be asking later on, you know, how do you normally respond to an unlovely boss, unlovely parents, uh, unlovely members of the family? How do you respond to unlovely people? Let me give you a story at the beginning here of a boy at our camp. I'm going to call his name Billy. That's a nice little name, but I'm going to call him Billy. The young man at 13 years of age built stocky and uh, he was a terror of his community from a city in Pennsylvania. He uh, was in charge at all times, wherever he went, of everyone. And in fact, even his father, that uh, wasn't really his father, but a live-in live -in husband, not a husband, he wasn't married, but living man with this boy's mother. And even his father was terrified at this boy because this boy, if he didn't have his way, he would get a knife and chase his father. Out in the streets, he would manhandle everybody and anyone because of his violent temper. No one could control him. Uh, the authorities were getting a stack of papers that uh, were records of his lawlessness. Uh, any small conflict... Uh, would fire him up, and he would be uncontrollable. In fact, so violent he would kill if he had a chance. Well, 
He came to camp because his parents couldn't control him and no one else could. The school couldn't handle him. Uh, the uh, law officials couldn't handle him. So he came to camp for us to love. So we had a good beginning of how to love the unlovely child. Now, how can I learn how to love a boy like him who was totally out of control, uh, violent, angry and bitter and mean and nothing to stop him? Uh, this child would not listen. He would not get out of bed in the morning. He would not walk the trails and behave himself as walk the trails. He would kick the stones or, or throw a stone or be cursing and swearing the whole time. You know, as a good Mennonite boy, I was exposed to a good quality home where you learn not to say uh, bad words and where you controlled your anger and where you behaved properly and where you were just a well-behaved boy. Well, you know, being brought up in that environment and then in our home school we focus on godly character and how to, you know, live a godly life and how to respond in a godly manner to all the things that you're going through, focusing on that type of environment. Uh, then to be thrown from there right into the middle of a bunch of boys that had knew nothing of good behavior and knew nothing of godliness. And then they hear them cursing and swearing all day long. It wasn't just a few minutes of a day, but as you walk the trails to hear them cursing and swearing at each other and at me as a chief, and uh, using words that you just cannot repeat. I learned a whole new set of words I can't but never heard before in my life. Phrases that were nauseating and were just terrible, immoral, and wicked and vile. But when you have boys like that at camp, what do you do? You can't control them. They're at camp. They're new. And we're all new at camp. All the boys are new. And so we would have huddle-ups and we'd talk about their language. But, you know, there was not enough good peer pressure to make them want to change. Oh, you know, you're just a chief, you know, you, you don't know what's going on and, and so on and so forth, you know. These boys would just as soon spit in your face as they would hike the trails. I recall many times, not many times, but I recall my pant leg being wet from spit, boy spitting, you know, at me. I recall having a mark on my arm by being bit by boys that, you know, want to bite and uh, would rather fight than change. Uh, this same boy was a boy who would just as soon spit as he would walk the trails. Uh, he could not eat a meal without a conflict coming up. In fact, I've had to already, number of times, bodily carry him away from the group, out to the lane and walk with him and talk about his behavior. Literally carry him bodily. During those moments of, uh, of uh, struggles, um, it seemed like the Lord gives you extra ability, extra strength, even physical strength. You know, you get kind of worked up and you want this boy to change and, you, and he isn't changing. 
And so you have to carry him, and, and you, God gives you strength to carry him uh, out to the main lane and then to walk the lane with him and talk about his problem. I recall one evening after we had powwow, and powwow is a time when you discuss the day's activities, and you try to have the boys go to bed in a good mood, because as they go to bed, that's how they get up. And so the idea was to reflect back on the day and you focus on the good things of the day. You can always find at least one good thing that the boys did that day. And so you focus on that. Well, during powwow, this boy began to just, you know, he could care less about what happened that day, the good things happened. And so he began to act up. So he walked away from the campfire and had a little hullup and started talking. And well... He, he didn't want to talk. He just wanted to kick the leaves and the twigs and he'd look around and he just would, didn't want to. And finally he got a little bit upset and he got to get a stick and he was going to hit another boy. So I had to grab him. I had to restrain him. And we're taught how to restrain a person without hurting him physically. So I held him. He began to curse and to swear and call me all kinds of names. And I'll just give you an idea of how, how it kind of went. Kind of went like this. Billy would say, let go of me, you blankety blank blank blank. And uh, I would say, Billy, I said, uh, I won't let go of you. I said, uh, we're going to keep stay right here with you, and we're going to uh, stay with you and work with you until you're willing to change your attitude and talk about your problems. Oh, I don't care about problems. I don't give a care. You blankety blank blank blank. Then he'd spit. Then he'd kick. Then he'd fight. So I sat on the ground in the leaves there right behind him my legs were on straddled him and I held him and we sat there he struggled and struggled and struggled and I still held him would let him go he kept cursing and swearing and tried to spit at me and tried to bite me I, I held him in a way that he couldn't do either I just uh, knew how to hold him so I sat there and he struggled and struggled and kept cursing and swearing and I kept just trying to say Billy you know just calm down and relax because uh, you aren't getting any words like this. You know, I'm, I'm not giving up on you. I'm, we're staying right here until you're willing to give up and talk about your problem. Well, I'll be here all night tonight, all day tomorrow. I said, that's just fine, Billy. <laughs> that's just fine. I'll have all tonight and all day tomorrow, too. We'll stay here as long as you want to stay here. As long as you want to stay here, I'll stay with you. We'll work, go work it together. i have all night, all day tomorrow. Nothing planned except you. <laughs> so we sat there, you know. There he just kept struggling and kept cursing and swearing. And you know, after a while, you get tired of hearing these kind of things. And after a while, he has to give up. I mean, he has to give out eventually physically. He's, he's so full of energy and he's struggling and struggling. And you get tired eventually. Well, you just sit there with him and kind of try to be uh, gentle. And in the meantime, you're praying deeply within Lord somehow get a hold of this guy's spirit somehow, change him somehow, meddle him, give me wisdom. I don't have any answers because, uh, you know, this is all new for me. How do you handle a guy like this anyway? So I sat there, you know, and I was in those quiet, be quiet for a while. And then he started start struggling again. Well, then he said, I hate camp. He said, I'm going to call my mom. I'm going to tell her all about camp, how bad camp really is. I hate you. I hate camp. Well, that's fine, Billy, but uh, you may hate me, but I still love you anyway. I love you, I care about you, and I'm not going to give up. Uh, I promised you when you came to camp that I would never give up on you. 
you have goals that you made when you came to camp, and we're going to stick to our promise that we're going to help you meet, the, meet, those, meet, meet those goals, reach those goals. And you won't go home until those goals are met, period. Well, I'm going home and I'm going to run off. I'm going to run away. No, you aren't. You're going to stay right here. And uh, you're going to stay here until you're ready to talk about your problem. And so we sat there for probably two hours at nighttime. And about midnight, he begins to get really tired and starts to get tired. He said, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. I said, yeah, I'm going to go to bed too. But I said, uh, are you ready to talk about your problems and your attitude? And he waited a while and finally said, yeah, I'll talk. And so as he began to relax his, his uh, muscles, I, I, I felt that. So I began to relax also. And little by little, he relaxed, I relaxed, and little by little, I could, I could tell it was safe to let him, you know, to let him free. The other boys had already left the group and went to bed already. They were in bed, sleeping. So we sat down by the fire and began to talk about his problem and his past. He opened up his struggles, his bitterness, his rejection. Uh, this is the problem he's really facing. We began to share. And I began to uh, understand, you know, why he was struggling and why his hesitation attitude. He was hurt many times and he was rejected and left alone and he was forsaken and not loved. And I began to share with him, you know, about God's love and how we love him and God loves him and God's got a plan for his life and, you know, he can change, he can become a new person and there's hope for him and all that. And we had a long discussion and we had prayer together. And I said, now, one thing you want to do, Billy, uh, can you promise to me that you won't do what you said you would do to, to this chief tomorrow morning? And he was going to do something to the chief tomorrow morning. And said, we promise you won't do that. Yeah, I'll promise. I said, well, you go to bed quietly and, and not make any noise and, and go to sleep. Uh, we work on your, on your, on your uh, goals tomorrow. I will do that. So after he had made these promises, I said, okay, we'll go to bed. So we went to bed. Well, Billy is still at camp, and it's been about two years now. He has tried to run off a number of times. I think, uh, in fact, two times at least, he ran away. And he made a home one time. Let me give you a quick story here of what happened. Billy, Billy ran off, and he got to a neighboring city, Hitchhike, and we looked for him back in the woods, and we looked for hours. In fact, we called the cops, they came, and... In fact, the, the police called a helicopter, and they came, <laughs> flying low over the hills, trying to find this run runaway. Because when they run away, you feel so responsible for those boys because, um, you know, if something happens to the boys while they're running away, then I'm liable by the state and by the parents that I haven't taken care of them properly. And so when they run away, I do a lot of praying. I mean, hard praying because... You know, I'm in God's hands, you know, and, and he's in God's hands. And so if you couldn't have that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will take care of him, and he will help you, you couldn't make it there. Impossible to make it there. Then when he, he, he made it home, he got to a neighboring town, called his mother. She sent money to him. He went home on the bus. Then he told her a big lie about camp. Well, you know, he turned camp. He just said lies about camp weren't true. So I talked to her, and uh, uh, before this happened, I was re relating with her about camp and what we do at camp, what's happening at camp. So she knew, basically, 
the things that we do at camp. Anyway, so I called her and told her that he ran away, and then she said, yeah, I know, he called me, and he's coming home. I said, well, I said, you know, he's not really fit to go home yet, because uh, he hasn't reached his goals, he's not safe to be at home, and uh, if he goes home, he'll just simply, you know, again, get in trouble. She said, I know that, she said, we know that, but uh, uh, we're going to talk about it here with my husband, or with with uh, his father, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Anyway, I mean, long story short, two days later they came to camp. This boy, Billy, and his parents, they came to camp. And uh, they said that, and this, uh, this boy, his stepfather said, uh, you know, we feel like, like this boy has caused you folks so much problems that uh, we don't think it's fair for you to, to keep working with him because he is just simply causing you to me a problem, and we don't like that. And we told him that, uh, you know, often before, if he caused problems, you know, he has to go home, and and uh, and if he goes home, we know that he will mess up at home, and he'll be in trouble with the law, and he'll be put in the jail. We we know that, but we feel like that's his choice, and he's going to make that choice. I said, yeah, but you know, I said uh, to his to his father, I said, you know, uh, we here at camp. We want those kind of boys because we want to help them. We know we can help them. And uh, so we expect problems. We want them to blow up. <laughs> we want them to bring out their feelings. At camp in the woods, they can do that. And, uh, and still be loved and accepted for who they are. You know, we have become so accustomed to hiding our feelings and our emotions that we look appear good on the surface. And we can hide a lot of things among us, even adults, in the church, in the school. But these boys, you know, they were real. <laughs> I mean, what was inside came out. And then you can work with it. And here is what you did. Here is what you are. And uh, here, now let's look at it. How do you respond to the problem that you're struggling with? Let's take measures. So problem solving is a very, very important part of camp. Uh, maybe you should, we should try it more at home in schools. How do you solve problems as a group? You know, what is a problem? What's the solution? And then uh, choose the best solution. And then how do you avoid the problem tomorrow? That type of thing. A real practical, everyday, hands-on uh, way of dealing with the unlovely people. Anyway, so the father said, well, yeah, we know that, but, uh, but uh, uh, we still think he should go home. And if he wants to mess up, that's his problem. If he wants to be in jail, his problem. I said, yeah, but you know, I said, uh, that's really not a safe thing for him to do. And then, uh, then this uh, boy's mother said, you know, this boy told me that, uh, that he ran off because there were people or boys picking on his friend in the group, and he couldn't handle that. And so because he couldn't handle that, he ran off camp. I said, well, that's strange. I said, you know, we, our chiefs are well-trained. They try to make sure that doesn't happen. And then uh, at that time, one of our counselors walked past the window. I called him inside, and I said, you know, chief, uh, they're saying here that, that, uh, that this boy ran off because some other boys picked on his friend. And his, his friend was a boy that was kind of mentally 
slow, and he couldn't defend himself very easily. Then the chief said, you know, this boy is the one that picks on this other fellow. He's the one that's guilty. And uh, then his stepdad said, you know, Billy, he said, I'm so angry with you. I'm so angry. You lied to me again. You blame me others for what you yourself were doing. He said, I'm angry. I am really angry with you. He said, I'm going to give you one more chance. He said, I'm going to get a coin out. I got a coin here. He said, uh, what do you want? He said, if you get what you want, he said, you can go home. If you lose, you're staying here at camp. And right then, I said, praise the Lord was in I mean, I didn't, I didn't show it. But uh, I was praying, Lord, somehow, somehow, I was trying to, you know, delay time so that somehow God can work through a system that he can stay. I was delaying, you know. Paul says in verse 10, For when I am weak, then am I strong. And so as I look at God's grace, understanding God's grace, is simply divine enablement. It's the inner power and strength to meet the conditions that's, that's before you. It's inner divine ability that God gives to us to respond to ungodly people in a godly manner. And that's a very important point because of ourselves we can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. The flesh can't do it. It's impossible to recognize that we can't respond to the unlovely in the right manner. Naturally speaking. And that brings me back to the first beatitude. It's blessed are the broken, uh, the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit is a person that is simply bankrupt. He understands his own utter, uh, utter uh, dependence on God utter inability to function without God. And so when we see this, and understand that we cannot carry out the mission before us without the strength that God can give us. Uh, I know I, uh, I've gone through that many times. I went to Canada, and when I was up there uh, in training for a few months, I recall the day when Claire told me, okay, Eugene, he said, uh, it's all in your hands. You know, you're in charge. I'm going to be going sabbatical, and now it's, you know, it's up to you. And at that time, we had probably 100 on staff, a lot of buildings to take care of, a lot of staff to take care of, a lot of ministries. And that very same day, guess what happened? And as if God was simply saying to me, you can't do it. And I agreed. But that very same day, that very same night, at midnight, I got a phone call from the administrator at one of our schools way up north and uh, he was crying on the phone and he said, Gene, what should I do? He said that we found this girl who was hanging by her bedside with a sheet around her neck and she had already turned blue. He said, we quickly released her and did mouth to mouth and She's living now, but she's very weak and uh, struggling. What should I do with her? What answer do you give? What do you give? You know, I was new at the job and new at the work, and uh, and the very day that 
Her said, you know, it's, it's in your hands. What do you do? And right then, I just knew what God was doing. He was saying, Eugene, this work, you know, it's, it's up to you. It's up to me of what can be done. And that gave me a whole new dependence and a whole new love for Jesus because, you know, as you face the situations, and even at the Bolivar Boys Camp, we had problems there that were just beyond what I felt anybody had the answers for. We had a weekend when the boys took over, like, like, almost like a riot. What do you do when there's out of control? And they're all out of control, everyone out of control. What do you do? Uh, it, it's situations that, that I faced that I just were like huge mountains. And I said, Lord, it's just impossible. And then he would say back, with man, yes, but with God, it's impossible. And it, it caused me to be humble. And it recognized my, my inability and insufficiency and how that I could cry to God and he's there to help me. So that grace that comes from God is so important because it says that, you know, where sin abounds, where unlovingness abounds, I mean, it's rampant all around us, they said God's grace doth much more abound. Isn't that wonderful? How in the middle of all these impossible situations where sin and hopelessness and despair and abuse, I mean, the world is so wicked, it's so vile, you get so discouraged by looking at it, I almost feel hopeless and helpless. What can I do? Well, that's where God wants us to be in that condition at all times. He had that attitude that it's too big for us. We can't do it. But then you focus on God. You don't focus on the problem or people. You focus on God. Who is God? What can God do? And then you look at all the things you did in the scripture and, and in your own life in the past and you just marvel and you take courage and you and you just get a whole new energy to, to, to move ahead in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the key of success lies, is God's grace. Rely on God's grace. So understanding God's grace is so important because if you don't understand God's grace, then you can't help the boys that are having struggles to find answers because you feel hopeless and then you share that with them by your attitude and by your, by your expression. You know, well, I don't do, I, I can't do anything for you. You know, I mean, there's no hope for you. I mean, just that whole attitude of hopelessness is something that we are going to have to take to Christ Himself and let Him handle it so He can come and give us hope to share with the boys that we're working with. God reveals power and grace when we're facing insurmountable Mountains. The second point I want to make this morning is understanding God's love. And when I say God's love, I guess I, I, I use a term that is so deep and so wide and so high that I can't begin to describe, you know, the, the depth of God's love. Understanding God's love in an intimate level, not in intellectually, but in the heart. What does it mean? Well, let's, let's turn to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus. And he says he's praying continually in verse 15 and 16. 
And then in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the height, depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge or a mere intellectual understanding, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. i just stop right there. There is a direct connection between God's love and the power that he can accomplish through us. Now I know we love to focus on that verse that God can do above all we ask or think and he can do exceeding abundantly of all we ask or think. Let the focus on that verse and how that God's powerful, we can do miracles, God can do miracles. But you know, you go back to that love. And I really believe that love is the key for God to do miracles. Without that love, God can't do miracles. Our love for God and God's love for us, God's love flowing through us. I believe with the right kind of love, we can empty out the psych wards, empty out the insane asylums. I believe with God's love, there can be a whole new world that we can experience if God's love can be understood in its fullness. But that doesn't come through living a comfortable life. It comes from struggles. Understanding God's love comes from struggles. And the more we struggle, the more we experience God's love. And the more we experience God's love and forgiveness, the more love you'll have for those who are unlovely. Because when you see them, you see yourself. Now, I know that we feel that we're not so unlovely. We feel like we've got a good background and been trained well and we behave well. We don't, we don't kill anybody. We don't drink. We don't smoke. We don't use drugs. And so we feel like we're just, you know, pretty good people. Yeah, but, you know, if you would see your heart, if I could see my heart as God sees it on a daily basis, it would greatly humble us, greatly humiliate us. There's no one here that I believe can go throughout a day without having struggles in his heart. Impure thoughts, anger, bitterness, pride, impatience, lack of love, doubt, fears, anxieties, discouragements. You can list a whole bunch of lists of things here that that our heart is depraved and is deceitful above all things, desperate and wicked. Who can know it? If we can somehow focus on, on our sinfulness and how that, because of God's great love and mercy, today we can be changed and made alive and made new people. If we can see that and keep that in focus, as we see these boys who are unlovely, people who are unlovely, we can look beyond what is being shown by their action and see deep down inside a very hurt heart. I think it's good for us to have what I call a hall of shame. (laughs) 
hall of shame in our own lives that we can look back upon and to look at the mistakes we made, the sins we committed, the problems that we're having to make us aware that it's only because of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience that today I am what I am. We can't expect these boys to change overnight. It would take years to develop their ugly character. Well, it comes natural because it's a simple heart. They won't change overnight. Even if, even if they become Christians, they can change up to a point. But it takes training, discipline, discipleship, and love to have a complete change of life. And so I think it's so important for us to understand that uh, we're not always lovely ourselves. If we would show attitudes, what's in our heart, I think people would see that we're not very lovely. In fact, let me just share with you this thing that I felt God was showing to me one day, and it's been sticking ever since, and that is that I tend to justify myself like when things, you know, uh, when I blow up or say unkind word or react wrongly or unlovely, then I like to say, well, yeah, but understand that I've had a rough day. Lost a lot of sleep last night, and this happened to me. My car gave out, and, uh, and, and things happened, and, uh, and so I've been really struggling, and that's why I act the way I do. That's why I responded to you wrongly. Understand that these causes behind me uh, is what makes me do what I did. Understand that, so that uh, you know, so that you can understand that that's that's why I have the way it was. You know, I find myself doing that all the time, excusing my behavior because of you know not having the ideal environment around me. But you know what? That's the time when the real you comes out. Under pressure is when the real me comes out. And so God was telling me, you know, Eugene, <laughs> that's not the real you when everything goes well. And uh, you can put on a big front, dress well, look nice, and respond nice, say nice words, say good morning, and be happy. I'm always kind of the person that's fairly optimistic and pretty bubbly usually. You know, and I, I've always had pet answers for every little problem that came up. That was just the way I dealt with issues. I, but, you know, God began to me through a lot of hard struggles. In fact, to the point where I was down so discouraged, and I knew it was wrong to be discouraged. It was actually a disabling discouragement that I couldn't function normally. And uh, discouraged that I could, couldn't figure out why I could see the light up there, the hole, but I couldn't reach the hole. I couldn't get out of this hole I was in. I was going through that struggle for a number of days, even a few weeks. I said, Lord, you know, I'd be, and I, I was praying, I was memorizing scripture, and I was, you know, I knew all the right things. But somehow, for some reason, God kept me in that position for a period of time. And I think his goal was to make me, me understand and sympathize with those who are also going through the very same experience. And now I can understand that uh, people do, do go through depression and discouragement. I mean, extreme discouragement and depression. They do go through it. And that uh, uh, it's not just normal to have everything go the way you think it should be going. Well, anyway, 
as I began to see that under pressure, the real me came out, and God said, there you are, Eugene. Now you work with it. Deal with it. That's being honest with yourself and with the Lord. And if we can see somehow, keep that, keep that in mind, you know, we marvel at God's love for me, and I failed so often. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't witnessed enough. I haven't uh, loved enough. And I, resp- I respond sometimes angrily. I reject people. I got struggle with hate. Uh, there's all kinds of problems I go through. I'm in the flesh. And uh, when I see that, then I began to have a greater love for the unlovely because I see where God loved me and accepts me and forgives me, is patient with me. And now because I experience that, I can share with those who are also going through it. And they can only see God's love through his people and how they respond to them. Third point I want to say this morning is that this is a very important one. That is that we need to, to develop a heart of compassion. Matthew 9, 36, Jesus said, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them. Now, how do you develop a heart of compassion? Well, it takes the grace of God, number one. It takes God's love, number two. But it has to go beyond that. It's got to go to the point where you have trained your eyes to see as God sees. What does God see when he sees people? Does God see the clothes, the hair? What does God see when he sees people? See, you, you see, you and I look at the things that we hear, the verbal expression, the emotions, the way we dress, the external things. We see that, all right? And we focus on that. And that's only a revelation of a deeper need. And so try to, try to correct the external before the internal is backwards and doesn't meet the need. We've got to see as God sees what is causing this person to behave the way he's behaving. See beyond his, his, uh, his verbal outbursts and, uh, and the way he's behaving. See beyond that and looking at his heart. When we understand that the unleavened child is having behavioral problems due to unresolved conflicts, then we can respond with more compassion. This guy is hurting. He's been, he's been rejected. He's been hurt deeply. He's got pain within. And so you, you start to feel pity for him instead of anger. And the person that even withstands you and uh, angrily, if you look beyond that, he's hurting. Someplace deep down inside, he's been rejected. And he's behaving, uh, he's responding to you because of some deep need that he has. Then you can start to have compassion on him and understand that he needs your love. We cannot and dare not blame others for the behavior of the unlovely child. Now we can counsel with this child and say, you know, it's because of your parents that you are the way you are today. And because of your background and because of you being rejected and you being hurt, that's why you're today responding the way you are. We can say that. But 
we must also say that even though your environment was not wholesome and you grew up that way, yet you must be responsible for your response to that. And you can change that. You can change that whole pattern that your parents handed down to you, your father, your mother. You can change the whole pattern. But you have to be responsible for your actions today. You can't change them and you can't blame them. And so you're going to have to take it into your hands and be accountable. So it's very important that we can have the compassion that we need on the individual. Now, there's two points here that I think are so important in, in, in learning how to develop uh, a heart of compassion. Number one is, you see that person as God sees him. He's made in God's image. He's got, God's got a plan for his life. And God left him be born in that ungodly home for a purpose. And when you understand that, that God is sovereign, you know, God... Uh, God sees him as a person of worth and of value and that God placed him in that home for a, for a, a unique purpose and that the whole experience he's going through can help him to be a better person if he responds to it correctly or it can cause him to get bitter and react to it. I was uh, one day talking to these uh, young boys in an outdoor chapel, and uh, I was trying to test them to see if things were getting through as far as, you know, understanding at least partially why they're facing this rejection that they've faced and hurt they've been facing. So I said to them one morning, I said, now boys, I said, you know, some of you are adopted, and some of you only have one, one parent. Uh, some of you... Um, have a lot of fears and, uh, and and you're ashamed of your community and your parents and who you are and who you came from. I said, uh, what is one good thing that you can tell me today that can be of value for you to experience all this rejection and uh, and having not having a father uh, and uh, all the pain you're going through? And I was just really pleased when I heard one boy say, well, you know, uh, being that went through this experience, I can understand with others better who are expecting the very same thing. I can be a better counselor, more effective counselor. Great, right on target. The other boy said, you know, being that I don't have a father, now I can trust and depend more on the heavenly father as my father instead of earthly father. So I knew that we were getting through some of the areas of, of need of how they can transform their past into a blessing and not a curse. Okay, we tend to look at our past and we think that, well, you know, I haven't had the upbringing you've had, so I can't really respond the way you do because I'm, I don't have that the training. Well, the last point I want to make here this morning is, real quickly, that is, uh, if we can understand that the things that we're facing, the unlovely person that we're facing, that God has a plan to work in us, in other words, developing a personal, godly character. God's ultimate goal for you and for me in this life, His highest priority, ultimate goal is to conform you and me into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, to develop godly character. All the conflicts that come your way, all the unlucky people coming your way, God's got a plan for you to change your life. 
and God's more concerned about changing you and me than he's about removing the problem. Don't forget that. We say, Lord, I can't handle it. Remove the problem. Remove the person. You know, it's his fault, her fault, the school's fault, the church's fault. You know, we blame people, blame, you know, and blame institutions. But uh, God's simply saying that I'm working with you. I'm building character in your life. I've already felt like, you know, running off, running with the church and, you know, doing things that just avoid all these problems. God's saying, you're staying right there because I'm building character in your life. You're going to learn how to love. You're going to learn how to be patient, how to forgive, and how to grow and mature and love the unlovely. So his concern is to build character in our lives. And that gives me a better response to the unlovely people because I see myself as being unlovely and God's trying to change that part of me that I have to work with. So God is simply saying, I want you to be a godly role model to these boys and they're going to test you and try you and you're going to see how far they can take you, but you show them who I am by your life, by your example. So here I have four main attitudes that I have talked about this morning. Number one, God's grace. You have an attitude of hope. You give this attitude of hope to the, to the boy because you see God's grace in your life and there's hope for him. The second one is the attitude of patience and acceptance. The boy sees God's love through you to him. You see, he sees that you have patience with him. You accept him for who he is unconditionally. The third attitude I see here is active mercy. Compassion brings an active mercy in response to his need. And the last one is attitude of humbleness. And that's godly character. God is working with me to try to change me through that individual. And that is sometimes pretty sore and pretty painful because God's training me and we, and we want to train him because I'm training you and the more you can be trained the more you help him okay Lord bless you for listening and uh, I'd like to have you pray for the camp the camp does need your help I was there two years and I had planned to stay long but the church asked me to come back and I hadn't planned to go back to Hartville but uh, God changed my plans, and that's where I'm now serving. Been there since July, and my heart's still at camp. I still love camp. I call them quite often and see how it's going. I support them and I pray for them daily. Pray for a camp that God can change his unlovely boys and make them into a lovely specimen for God's glory. Even the worst of sinners, God loves to change the worst of sinners. God bless you. For the most current Faith Builders recordings, visit ChristianLearning.org. And for more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.